Hello and welcome to MySecurity TV and our Tech and Sec Weekly. My name is Chris Coverage. I'm the Executive Editor and Director with MySecurity Media. And today we're joined by Dr. William Stoltz uh, from the Australian National University. He's a Senior Advisor for Public Policy with the National Security College. We have had William on before, so it's great to have him joining us with us again. We're going to be looking at reforming electronic surveillance. This follows on from our interview with Dr. Nick Tate from the Australian Computer Society. Uh, the ACS also put a submission in and uh, William and his team at ANU have also put a uh, public submission into the discussion paper from uh, the Department of Home Affairs. So if you've seen the Nick Tate interview, you'll definitely take interest in this one. So let's be joined now by Dr. William Stoltz. William, thanks Morning, for Chris. Great to have you back. Um, look, thank you so much for this. And we'll walk through the ANU paper and I suppose one first question I've got is where does this sit uh, in terms of uh, the ANU making public uh, submissions and the Australian uh, Security College? Um, was this a bit of a red flag when you saw it or you just saw it as an opportunity uh, in terms of, you know, adding to that discussion paper and adding to and, and contributing? Yeah, I suppose I saw it really as, as a, a great opportunity. I mean, I should say at the outset that this reform initiative that the Department of Home Affairs has kicked off here um, is quite quite new. So this isn't a parliamentary inquiry or anything like that. It is. This is born from the um, recent Richardson review, which looked um, quite holistically at national security law reform writ large, and it, it put a central recommendation that Australia's electronic surveillance reform framework really needed to be in, really needed a root and branch kind of restructure and review um, with a, a new um, a new modernised piece of legislation to cover off. On electronic surveillance, so the department has initiated this public consultation process, which will which will go on for quite a while. Because this is this is to put it honestly, this is probably the most complex piece of legislative reform in the last forty years in the national security space. Um, so the department put the call out for public submissions, and um, I suppose I really saw an opportunity here for the ANU to kind of mobilise the, the resident expertise, not just in the National Security College, but but also in our College of Law um, to really look at this uh, this really important issue because, um, you know, the National Security College was set up as a joint partnership with the Commonwealth um, to really improve the study of national security and to provide government with um, kind of robust, independent policy recommendations. But then, of course, the College of Law at the ANU also has a very deep um, record and history of um, informing policy reform in the law enforcement space in particular. So I really thought it was a great opportunity to bring the two communities together. And so this submission that we put together was informed by a closed door like joint dialogue that we held in December and, and got some excellent um, representation from across the ANU. And we also got some really valuable private briefing from um, members of the, the national security community as well to inform uh, inform the submission. So that that's the context to, to what right. brought it about. Um, I mean, it's what it's what we hope is the beginning of a, a kind of a quite a, a long conversation with the department about electronic surveillance reform. Um, you know, the discussion paper they put out was incredibly comprehensive and I don't think we can necessarily respond to it in just one go. There's lots of thorny issues here. So we hope it's really the beginning of a, a pretty fulsome dialogue, to be honest. Yeah, I think they should have called it discussion paper number one. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, there's a couple of things. One, we'll give uh, Dr. Dominique Dalla-Poza, uh, also a primary author with yourself. Uh, and it's really, I think, thank you for providing that background because you've even got the likes of 
John Blaxland, Rory Medcalf, uh, and the like mentioned here, Adam Callan. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I think it's a much deeper submission uh, than what it pot potentially presents uh, initially. Mm. Um, I suppose a couple of one question is I had, do you think this is going to be possible you know, in, in terms of the vision that the discussion paper sets out? And even when I look at your first key statement of the Commonwealth should take a holistic appreciation of the harm caused to targets by electronic surveillance uh, and to include the impact of retention and dissemination of surveillance material as well as the harm caused by the intrusion of surveillance itself. I kind of read that, if I interpret that correctly, you read that this was a, and I read the discussion paper, it's very comprehensive in terms of mm. where they want to go. They want to do groups, they want to do you know, anyone using a particular app. So I think, and again, I, uh, as someone, when I spoke to Nick, I've got a policeman's hat on, you know, I've, I've done surveillance and invasive surveillance in the past. And, you know, maybe as a police officer, you don't appreciate uh, how invasive that actually is. You've got a job to do. Are you reading that discussion paper as, wow, like there's a lot of power and, and capability building uh, up here? Oh yeah, I mean the impact that electronic surveillance reform, uh, sorry, electronic surveillance can have um, in the modern era is is pretty powerful. Um, in terms of the the complexity of the reform itself, I mean they're trying to consolidate like a vast number or a vast scale of legislation into a single act. You know the the current electronic surveillance um, framework has kind of been built up in a pretty piecemeal way, really since the nineteen seventies. Um, with a predominant focus on the Telecommunications Act and the Surveillance Devices Act. Um, and so it's been, it's become kind of a bit of a, a Jenga tower really, where you've had um, little moments of reform around specific issues kind of just continually bolted on to these legacy, um, legacy uh, laws. And so at the heart of this reform is, is this idea or this aspiration of trying to create a, like a technology agnostic piece of legislation that it can be enduring despite um, technology changes and advances in forms of surveillance. I think in principle, that's a great thing to aspire to. But I think as we know, just from our own anecdotal experiences, technology change has been so rapid in recent times and has enabled forms of surveillance that law enforcement agencies wouldn't necessarily have anticipated, but have nevertheless taken advantage of. Um, and so I'm, I'm perhaps a little bit skeptical about the ability to create a kind of enduring um, piece of legislation that doesn't have to be um, at reformed um, as frequently as perhaps the, the department's envisaging. Um, but certainly electronic surveillance as, as an activity does go to, you know, it goes to really fundamental questions about how we balance you know, we balance individual freedoms, that we balance freedom um, and privacy against, um, you know, justice and law enforcement and security. So so in that sense, um, this was also an opportunity to really get to the heart of some kind of first principles about how we as a liberal democratic society want to deal with having um, government agencies having these types of intrusive powers. I think uh, one aspect is, and, and I just don't see it happening, is the state and commonwealth uh, legislation aligning in this and I think there's another one is I read the discussion paper is really looking at national security and national security threats including the ASIO Act and I'm wondering whether that should be separated from say state a state police agency or a regulatory agency that might want to do interception or benefit from uh, intercepted material versus an ASIO that potentially could have unlimited power and coercive powers 
and allow that, but you don't want sort of state police having access to the, those types of powers or that type of, of um, material as well. Do you see there's going to be a need for segregation and did it discuss that enough? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, in, in some instances, state police forces actually have more intrusive um, uh, powers than than Commonwealth agencies, not not specifically in the case of electronic surveillance, but in some aspects. But you're quite right that the ability to kind of reconcile those disparate jurisdictions, like, I mean, we see that across various policy areas, that that's a constant, constant problem. Um, that's the nature of existing in a federation, I suppose. Um, to your point, though, about, you know, the kind of the balancing of law enforcement and national security objectives, it's something that we did point to in our discussion paper that at the moment in Commonwealth legislation, there's kind of this very nebulous concept of serious crime that is yeah. used to kind of bridge um, criminal activity and, and I guess what you would call national security issues. Um, and that's often been what's been used in legislation to designate certain crimes as being, well, that's that's a serious crime and that can attract the application of what we would call national security powers. Um, but I suppose the difficulty with that is that uh, it's also kind of capturing a lot of offences that we wouldn't necessarily traditionally think of as security issues. So, for example, um, child exploitation activities and, and certain um, organised crime activities that people wouldn't immediately think of as national security issues. Um, but what it also does is it also sometimes misses offences that might be lower down the spectrum, but yeah. still related to um, a national security threat. So you think about the kind of preparatory activities that someone who might be preparing for a terrorist attack might engage in. There's going to be there's going to be perhaps quite like low level offences as part of their that build up to a terrorist attack that you wouldn't necessarily say is captured by serious crime, but we'd nevertheless want agencies to be able to deploy, you know, the, the relevant surveillance powers to be able to um, observe that offence and, and then interdict it. So I think that there is a there is a tension here, that this blurring of the lines between law enforcement and national security. Um, and that also goes to the kind of the heart of what agencies' purposes are as well. You know, we, many decades ago, like we set up ASIO as a separate, um, you know, specifically oversighted organisation with these national security powers separate from organisations like state law enforcement and um, the AFP. Now we're kind of blurring them back together and and I don't know if that's necessarily the most coherent approach for the Australian public because it's transparency is also about um, making sure that ordinary Australians can actually understand uh, the powers that are being used and the justification for them. But you look at you know, you look at the legislation and, and potentially look at the legislation that's being created here, and that's perhaps not always apparent. Um, one area I wanted to cover, well, there was, there was a couple, but you talked about serious crime and the like, and I get that, but it's picking up the Surveillance Devices Act and video conferencing, and then also, I think, just street CCTV uh, as well. And that's where it brings it down, sort of the separation between national security uh, and law enforcement and uh, in the discussions with with Nick and the ACS is and we still see it often police accessing video surveillance uh, without any any warrant because it's just uh, you know um, sort of put up and, and allowed voluntarily provided to the police uh, and even police going to I, ISPs uh, and the like and getting information without a warrant mm. uh, 
but there's I think there's like 35 different warrant types, a uh, thousand pieces of legislation. So you can't necessarily expect the police to be across all that legislation. Mm. Um, do you think it's possible to provide that or the trigger? I see that you've got here a public interest advocate potentially in here as well. Um, what was your observations on the Surveillance Devices Act and the use around that and the use of video in particular? And we'll come back to the PIA. Yeah, yeah, I suppose you're quite right. There's there's a, a wide range of ways in which the police can access, not just police, but other agencies as well, can access um, surveillance information without a warrant and, and, you know, open source, the growth of open source intelligence as well is also really allowing for a lot of um, surveillance type activities um, that aren't, you know, aren't warranted. And, and that's why we really emphasised um, up front with our discussion paper that the Commonwealth legislation needs to treat surveillance in a really holistic way, that, that when we consider the harm that's caused by surveilling someone, that it's not just in the, the act of observing them in that moment of time, so whether it is through, you know, CCTV footage or something like that, that you're actually appreciating that there is an ongoing intrusion that happens to the target through the retention and the dissemination of surveillance material and something that we draw attention to that I, I personally don't think was as well addressed in the discussion paper as it should be is also the use of predictive data. You know, we yeah. see law enforcement intelligence yeah. agencies acquiring ever more kind of sophisticated artificial intelligence systems. Um, and if you're able to um, anticipate somebody's behaviour in the real world, that pattern of life, uh, to my mind, that is no less intrusive than, than you know, watching a recording of what they did yesterday or, or watching them um, in yeah. a live stream. Um, so I think, it, you know, we need to appreciate the, the full life cycle of what's happening to the data and the information that we, we capture on someone. Um, and, that, and that, to my mind, means that we do need to treat, you know, open source acquired information um, perhaps a little bit more rigorously than it, than it has been because even though that single data point at the moment you acquire it, you might say, well, that's not that intrusive because it's just, you know, it, it, it's fairly innocuous um, footage or, or information. It's when it's put in aggregate with everything else yeah. that it's potentially, can potentially be quite intrusive. And at the moment, our system doesn't really think about surveillance in that way. It really just focuses it at the at that single point of um, surveillance or intrusion. So that's, that's really something um, we were really encouraging the department to kind of put quite front and centre in the way they consider this legislation. It, did, it does mention AI, quantum computing and sort of that uh, sort of future technology, but uh, does it discuss predictive analytics on intercepted data at all? And you would mm. think that that would have been on their mind at some point. Uh, and then how would you, <laughs> how are you going to legislate something that's predictive? Because you're absolutely right, two or yeah. three pieces of information start to create a picture and, and then uh, something that, again, with the ACS interview is uh, when they sort of access an application or they start to access or target a group, that collective data uh, creates data lakes that they're never going to throw away. That's the other, and I think that's another key point here is data storage. All of this information yeah. will be retained. I think you're right when you raise retention um, and dissemination of that data, it's the, 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 the agencies will have the capability to store practically everything and what they uh, legally intercept under a warrant uh, can be used potentially in another, in another case that might be unrelated as well. So it is quite a, 
yeah, if you think 10 years down the track, what this could actually mean, um, I think that maybe then comes to the public interest advocate. How yeah. do you see that potentially working? Yeah, look, it's, it's something that we as a discussion group actually had quite a, a wide range of thoughts on. You know, there's been a the, the concept of the PIA as it's kind of been thus far um, uh, argued for is that it would be kind of a, a external or an agency or an individual separate from the law enforcement and intelligence agencies kind of almost acting as an additional layer of oversight alongside um, existing bodies like the Inspector General for Intelligence and Security or the Australian um, uh, Commission for Law Enforcement Integrity. There was concern in the, the discussion group we had that, that there was actually a risk associated with that that if you created a single public interest advocate that was separate from the collectors, that that you might actually create a permission structure for individual investigators to kind of um, delegate or forego their own um, you know ethical obligations for the public interest because they could say, well, I don't need to worry about that because there's a there's a public interest advocate separately to this process that will will take a look at it. Yeah. Uh, so all I need to care about is, you know, operational imperatives, that sort of thing, which is obviously when we think about, you know, philosophically what uh, what is important to anyone being a public servant is that they that every public servant kind of have has a universal obligation to exercise the special powers um, and responsibilities they get as a, as a public servant, that they do that with due regard for um, the impact on civil liberties and the public interest. So we actually kind of suggested that on the one hand, yes, it could be useful to have a separate body, but what's probably also really important is that agencies be properly resourced to have internal advocates as well, um, people that are that are there to actually help, you know, educate and make sure that there's a culture, um, a positive culture within the agencies that respects the public interest, um, you know, respect for civil liberties, these sorts of things, because ultimately that that idea of making sure that agencies are using these powers not only in a legal way but in an ethical way um that is actually cultural and i don't think i think we need to um manage our expectations about how much we can actually prescribe that in legislation you know you can't you can't prescribe in legislation an agency having a healthy culture when it comes to these sorts of things you need you need it to be built within the organization itself so we were kind of suggesting that maybe it needs to be um, a dual model where you have you have a, a, a big powerful PIA kind of separate from the agencies, but that there's also um, internal advocates as well who really help engender that positive culture. I think the only pushback on that one in terms of culture, I think you're absolutely right of, of the culture, but I think the culture in agencies is to either get the job done or uh, you know the easiest way to to achieve their mission. So I think I probably would say that the culture is not there. For the public interest and we did see that with the uh the covid related data uh i think it happened in in wa as well the moment um sort of the the check-in codes and the qr codes and and all of that data becomes available and the police see it uh, homicide investigation i believe and another serious crime they'll, they'll go and assess it so they're not really too concerned i don't think they do see a wider picture here or the more the strategic picture of the, the impacts of um of this because again and i go back to my own experience uh doing a homicide you 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 are a vacuum you will vacuum up everything mm. because you don't know uh and you know and even down into taking people's dna and, and collecting all of that you know think about the size of the macro investigation 
and the the powers there and then again they don't have to throw that that stuff out if it's given voluntarily so i just think uh the pia is probably a good one but i'd actually take it outside of uh an agency and have it as a completely independent and i think if you have it internally you're going to get pushback too like you'll have internal conflict so i it's a really hard one because one i'm always in two minds of you've got to give the police as much opportunity as possible to achieve their mission whatever that may be uh, but then again, from a, a public's perspective, you don't want it going into the wrong hands because, uh, mm. you know, it would be as bad as an authoritarian nation, you know, when you think about some of the powers that we have. Um, I suppose in that mind of the, the changes in the transparency and the public understanding how broad this discussion should be, like we've done a couple of interviews on it, um, but this has been out for a little while. I haven't seen any public uh discussion on this where do you think it should go in terms of the broader uh broader public uh sort of persona and in, in what we're talking about yeah look to, to the department's credit um they have uh they ha have begun to engage in in more public events and and i understand that they plan to do more throughout this process so um the australian strategic policy institute did host a public event uh where secretary pizzullo uh and um the Secretary of the Attorney General's Department uh, did a public event to discuss this initiative. Um, you know, that's that's really great to see. Um, obviously, there's only ever going to be so many people in the Australian community who are, who are really paying attention to these things. People like yourself, which is which is excellent. Um, look, I think that there's there's a larger transparency piece for law enforcement and intelligence agencies writ large in Australia. Um, you know, we've seen. Um, the Mike Burgess, the Director General of ASIO, undertake his annual threat assessments. He did the third one this year, um, which obviously generated a little bit of um, uh, public attention and, and activity in Parliament. Um, but those that those types of exercises in public transparency are actually really vital to public trust yeah. and understanding at a time of pretty um, pretty thorny kind of. Uh, geopolitical strife and national security change in Australia. And I'd love to see that from other agency heads as well, just really kind of getting out there as much as they can. And there's multiple different ways to do it. Um, you know, you can do it in those formal formal settings, but I think it's also um, just through things like, you know, we saw ASIO a couple of years ago commission an official history. These types of products are really important um, to just making sure that Australians actually have a realistic appreciation of what these agencies are doing in their name. Um, because at the moment, as we know, it's in the information environment that we live in, um, it's very easy for misunderstanding, misinformation and kind of conspiracy theories to spread around what these agencies do. And I think more often than not, um, people actually have an over uh, overinflated sense of what agencies' powers and capabilities are. Well, mm. can I just stop you on that one? Capabilities, and I was gonna raise it earlier, you mentioned resources and how something like this is resource. So from the ACS submission, they're saying stop deputizing technology companies because basically police are going with a warrant saying whatever technology you've got or we want access to and you're not allowed to tell anybody you know they can go into a company and you know get them to start to work for them uh the resourcing of this and i don't see too much on your submission in terms of resources do you look at technical skills and resources from the agency's viewpoint as well because i there is your single electronic surveillance agency yeah. as means to manage authorizations and disseminations is unlikely to be effective or feasible. And that's probably the only opportunity that they would have to 
to get specific technical skills that they might need? Yeah, yeah. So in our submission, we we this particular submission was really focused at kind of the first core principles about what the legislation should look like. So we haven't dived into um, the capability requirements um, that much, but it's certainly uh, it's certainly a, a, a big issue. Um, you know, because it's uh, it's a very quite niche select workforce that is able to do this this type of activity. Um, and you also want it done really well. So when you're talking about um, potentially expanding access to electronic surveillance powers to additional agencies, um, it should be tempered with an understanding of, well, actually, if we do give that agency this power, will they have the skill set and the professionalization in the agency to actually use those powers properly? Um, that, that does have to be um, a consideration. Um, and certainly, you know, that the reality is, is that uh, it's just going to be more efficient for agencies to partner with the private sector on some of these things rather than build a capability um, internally. And I think, you know, that obviously does create um, challenges for the telecommunications industry in particular um, about how they manage their, their own relationships with the public. And I think there's a transparency piece for um, big tech firms as well to also be more open with the public about how much information um, companies not only are obligated to hand over through legislation, but how much they voluntarily hand over. Because yeah. that's something that's often um, not discussed as much, which is that most telecommunications companies actually um, undertake voluntary assistance uh, with law enforcement intelligence agencies um, rather than wait to be you know, commanded to do so under legislation. So um, I think there's a transparency uh, piece there as well. But um, and in terms of the, the capability and the funding that's required, um, you know, as the technology changes, we're going to require, you know, a larger workforce and ever more kind of sophisticated technical capabilities in order to undertake electronic surveillance. Um, and I think just from an efficiency point of view, there's going to always be a temptation for government to just lean heavily on industry to repurpose um, systems that they've already established. Yeah, I think there's going to there will be pushback because I think there's always going to be a line here. I, uh, I mentioned that to Nick is whether there will be a defined line. Law enforcement might just have to go. Yeah, we can't go that far. You know, we don't have the resources. Industry doesn't have the time. Yeah. The technology is too advanced. You know, you think about Web 3.0 and sort of a, a metaverse. Uh, you know that that's coming within three to five years, and yeah. so you know. And you, that's all new crime types as well. So, you know, good luck. Uh, they're always going to be a sort of a five-year sort of phase for them to catch up. You know, they're never going to be current. And uh, something that, and I think you've raised it too, that uh, despite the best efforts, it's unlikely that a truly technology agnostic, completely future-proofed electronic surveillance framework can be realised. The ACS have also kind of raised that in their submission that, uh, you know, discussions around AI and quantum uh, and intercepting that is way too early. So fair enough mm. for them to raise it now, but I think uh, the realization will have to be have to be made, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and that's why one of the things that we've actually advocated for is that they actually build into this new electronic surveillance legislation um, a kind of every ten or fifteen years a trigger point for another holistic review like this yeah. one that's being undertaken, um, so that this kind of piecemeal, um, fairly reactionary approach to legislative reform that's happened over the last couple of years um, is, is somewhat kind of pulled back a bit. Like there's always going to be urgent operational requirements where something changes you didn't expect and you need to legislate, you know, next week. 
Um, but there are a lot of other reforms that probably could wait every decade or so for that refresh. Um, and part of that as well is we've also said that it's it's also really important that you have something like a national security statement to parliament or something like that, where the responsible minister actually gets up and explains to parliament and therefore the public about you know the threat environment, the operating environment that warrants um, these these extraordinary powers, and kind of brings a little bit of coherence to to why these powers exist and and potentially why they might need to be reformed out of cycle and that sort of thing. Um, because at the moment, in recent years, we've seen some pretty rapid legislative reform. That's it's difficult for you know people like myself or even people in the media who are trying to pay attention to it to even really understand why it's happening. Um, you know, there was a there was a very quick reform to you know um, the ASIO Act last year that was kind of rushed through in a couple of days, um, and that really hinders uh, transparency and our ability to actually understand why these these things are changing. And obviously, there's always operational sensitivities that that things can't be discussed um, as explicitly that publicly. But um, I think you know you need to try your best to have a kind of sanitized, declassified conversation with the public and with the parliament. Um, because otherwise that's how you kind of get these weird conspiracy theories pop up about yeah. what's, what's happening. Yeah, look, I second that. If you, you struggle uh, keeping up, then makes me feel better because I can't <laughs> keep up with all of this. Um, and interestingly, you mentioned that is, um, I think last time we had you on was a paper discussion paper that you wrote on uh, Australia's need for an intelligence minister and potentially it kind of backs up exactly what we're talking about here mm. is that central point. I also like it when Mike Burgess and the like come out with a public statement, put themselves out in the public record. Um, and I think it's good. You know, again, I think for a liberal democracy, you don't want mm. them hiding in the background like they used to. Mm. Uh, and it, got, it does create debate. Just controlling the politicians afterwards is the uh, is the challenge. But yeah. I think the public sees through a lot of that uh, as well. Um, and look, interest, uh, just um, subject to time as well. Uh, Taiwan. I'm doing a review, and it doesn't it doesn't work on my green screen for for whatever reason. Uh, Australian Foreign Affairs uh, latest edition, the Taiwan Choice Showdown in Asia. Um, you've got a paper in here um, on preventing malware and sort of uh, more of a uh, Australia's legislative framework for uh, malware and, and ransomware attacks and the like, and then how Australia could take a potential lead uh, on this. And in fact, even to just today. Uh, the agencies uh, have come out with um, a Russian uh, attributed malware. A new version of that is out uh, following the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict at the moment. So this legislation potentially is needed. And we've also got the new Critical Infrastructure Protection mm. uh, Act and a range of things. Um, the latest, sort of the second round of the bill for critical infrastructure protection where uh, attacks on critical infrastructure cyber attacks will incur a, a large jail term, I think 25 years or 20 years. Is that kind of what you had in mind when you read this or, or do you think there's still some room to go? Look, what I was arguing for in the um, foreign affairs piece is just to, just for what I think is some kind of practical, rational legislative reform um, around uh, possession of malware. Because at the moment, all the, the offence framework relates to the harm or the damage done by using malware um, in a destructive way. Well, you've got and to use it first, right? So yeah, your yeah. argument says, hang on, if you've got it, uh, potentially with an intent, uh, that, yeah. that's far enough. And I understand, you know, people have said to me, there's there's um, a lot of kind of uh, technical issues around 
um, you know, establishing, I suppose, whether someone actually knew that there was malware on their computer, all those sorts of things. And then an investigator would obviously have to go through that. Yeah. Um, but it's just the current framework places investigators in Australia in a kind of awkward position where they can actually identify when someone has a fairly serious cyber weapon on their computer, but they can't actually act to interdict that until a whole lot of other trigger points are met around the intent and, and potentially even um, post fact after it's actually been used. So just it's not uh, my I'm not saying that uh, criminalizing the possession of malware is going to solve the problem entirely. It's not. This is going to be, you know, you're going to have to come at this problem for a lot of different angles. But I was arguing that here's a piece of fairly rational legislative reform that we could undertake, but also springboard off it to advocate for um, similar reform at an international law level. So um, the United Nations is currently going through the process or beginning what it will be a lengthy process of actually creating a, a cybersecurity treaty um, around um, uh, around kind of these issues and, and, and other issues relating to um, cyber-enabled crime. The treaty itself has been advocated for actually by China and Russia, um, but they did actually end up getting the support of the General Assembly to bring this treaty into development. So Western countries like Australia really didn't want this to happen at first because we saw this as a ploy by the Chinese and the Russians to kind of enshrine in international law their norms around intervening in people's um, lives online. But I think nevertheless, there is an opportunity because this treaty is being brought into development for um, Australia and other Western countries to say, all right, well, we, we now think it is a good idea we have a cyber um, cybersecurity treaty um, and potentially we could include some things like uh, greater restrictions around the possession of malware as well. And it does that kind of does force the Russians and the Chinese to a certain point to either um, follow the international community in recognising that greater restrictions of malware is required or to kind of, I guess, uh, tacitly acknowledge that they are they they would prefer to kind of be a bit of a pariah on this issue because um, you know we saw early last year with the the Microsoft Exchange attack um, that happened you know the the use of um, the Chinese in actually um, I guess using contract uh, contract criminals yeah. to undertake the malware attacks um, and then also the Russians as well in some of their um, some of their activities have also leveraged private hackers. Um, and as a result, they've also, in doing that, they've kind of let a lot of this malware out there into the wild, it's, and it's, which is incredibly irresponsible. Now it's out there, it's being repurposed by other cyber criminals. Um, and we need to pressure, we being, you know, Western liberal democratic countries, we need to pressure Russia and China on that activity because it's an incredibly irresponsible thing um, that they're doing. And so, look, international law, people are pretty sceptical about its ability these days to actually solve problems. but. Um, I think there are potentially some um, constructive avenues for us to get to, you know, a better digital environment. You know, a thing I'm always banging on is that we as a society are, are still in the kind of fairly early stages of figuring out how to be um, digitally, you know, as integrated as we are. Um, how do we run a, a cohesive, healthy society and be as plugged online as we are? Um, that's a really... Um, both with the electronic surveillance reform initiative and, and with international law initiatives, it's a really big trouble. It's a really big um, problem for, for lawmakers to understand how they regulate in this space to create a healthier, um, more cohesive digital society. So, um, you know, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating time, and and to my mind, it needs kind of innovative, creative solutions, and we do need to be willing to experiment a bit. You know, um, and that's where things like the electronic surveillance reform. Um, comes into it and is a really good thing to see where it's an opportunity to potentially 
take a really greenfields approach to how we legislate around these issues. So um, I'm really eager to keep the ANU and, and my colleagues engaged in it to to make sure that we can, you know, hopefully have the, the as future-proofed legislative regime as we can get. Yeah, look, I think um, you, you've nailed it there. We're looking at sort of the protection of the public, uh, not just but from the technology itself, uh, mm. as well as from adversaries in a new digital environment. And our digital economy will rely on it too. So, mm. uh, William, please, uh, and, and thank you also to the ANU. You keep uh, uh, coming on and talking to us and, and producing good work as well that again creates that insight, I think, from all stakeholders need to be reading these documents as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, no, thank you, Chris. It's really kind of you to have me on. I really appreciate it. Great. So Dr. William A. Stoltz, a Senior Advisor for Public Policy, National Security College with the Australian National University. Enjoy the rest of your day, William. Thank you very much. Thank you. See ya.